He is a great God. And this morning we're going to ponder together His greatness from 1 Samuel chapter 29. Um, but before we turn there, let's pray once more and ask the Lord to give me the right words to speak. Um, there's a hymn that we sing that says, uh, Brethren, pray uh, while we try to preach the Word. And that really is all we can ever do, is just try to preach the Word, because really it's all vanity, empty, if the Spirit doesn't fall. So let's pray for that this morning. Lord Jesus, we ask that Your Spirit would be here with us. We don't know what to do in so many circumstances in our lives, but our eyes are upon You. And we turn now to Your Word. We want to be called to trust and obey. Give us faith, not only to believe, but to live like we believe it. God, we put all of our faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do we do when God makes a promise And everything, all the circumstances in our life, all of the people in our life, all of the signs, everything within us and outside of us is screaming that what God has promised is literally impossible. There's just no way that what God has promised can actually come to pass. There's no conceivable way as I look at my life and what's happening and the things surrounding me, there's no conceivable way that God can actually pull this off. I'm sure it's a question or a thought process that we've all encountered at one time or another in our lives. Maybe even today, you're facing circumstances, and as you look at them, there seems to be no clear answer. Maybe you dread leaving here today because you know tomorrow, whether at work, or in your family, or in your marriage, or in a relationship with a friend, There waits for you on Monday a problem that seems completely unfixable. Something is fundamentally broken and you have tried a thousand ways to fix it and you've come to the conclusion it is so broken, not even God can fix it. In these moments in our lives, it's not that we necessarily doubt the goodness of God's intentions for us. Certainly God wants to keep His promises. And in our minds we start to create this separate category that somehow lets God off the hook. There's nothing wrong with God's will. He wants to keep His promises. It's just that He can't in this situation. 
either because of my own sin or because of other people's sin or simply the impossibility of the situation I've gotten myself into, there is no way this time that God can keep His promise to me. That's the dilemma that David finds himself in in 1 Samuel chapter 29. Last week, if you were here with us, uh, in chapter 28, Saul had an interesting encounter with a witch uh, who manages, miraculously, even to the astonishment of the soothsayer, she's astonished that she's able to conjure up Samuel's ghost back from the grave. But the story isn't just included merely because it's a curiosity and it's a very bizarre occurrence and it's very interesting. God raised Samuel from the dead to remind Saul of a specific promise that Samuel had made to him while he was still alive. Look with me back to chapter 28 for a moment, verse 17. 1 Samuel 28, verse 17. Samuel says to Saul, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So as Samuel comes rising up out of the grave, and Saul is pleading with him to give him a word from the Lord, the word that Samuel gives him is the very same promise, the exact same word that Samuel spoke to him in chapter 15. This promise that seems so slow in coming to pass. This promise that Saul had all but assumed would never happen. Samuel appears one last time to haunt Saul by saying, it is coming true, God will keep his promise, and it's happening tomorrow. Saul, you are a fool to think otherwise. The kingdom will be torn from your hand, given to David, and you and your house and all the people marching with you are going to perish on the battlefield. And it's happening tomorrow. And that is the promise as we read chapters 28, 29, 30, 31, the ending of 1 Samuel. It's the last 24 hours of this book. This promise that God brings Samuel out of the grave, not only to remind Saul, but to remind us this morning. This is the promise that is governing everything that is about to take place. God is going to keep this promise. But as we look into chapter 29, we have this more fundamental question. Okay, it's all well and good that God wants to keep His promise, but can God actually do it? Can God keep His promise? From the looks of it, from the situation that David finds himself in, it seems to me that there is no way that this promise can come to pass. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. Maybe we've forgotten where we have left David while we were off hunting witches with Saul. 
In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. So whose side is David going to fight for? The Philistines. Verse 2. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, ha, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Essentially, you're not getting out of this. You're marching into battle with me. You will kill your kinsmen on the battlefield. And that will be that. David is trapped as the senior bodyguard of the king of the army of the enemies of his own people. He is marching into a battle where if something doesn't change, by the next day tomorrow, he will be wetting his sword with the blood of his own friends and family. So, with such impossible circumstances... It begs the question in chapter 29 as we begin to read, can God actually keep His promise? So why don't we stand together and find out as we read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces to Aphek. And the Philistines were encamped, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear of Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this very day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now. And go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then... Rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. You may be seated. So our story in 1 Samuel is all coming full circle. As verse 1 opens, 
Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. Maybe you don't remember, but Aphek is where our story in 1 Samuel began. Aphek is the place where the Philistines first gathered against Israel. And remember when they captured the Ark of the Covenant and they struck a great blow against Israel. And where Samuel's first promise of God came true. And the house of Eli fell. Do you remember that? Chapter 3 told us, And the Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground. None of Samuel's words fell to the ground at the beginning of his ministry and now even after his death. The promise that the house of Saul would fall is about to come true. David will be king. The question that is looming at the beginning of this chapter is how? The title this morning I want to give to the sermon is this. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. This is what we realize in 1 Samuel 29, and it's what we have to know in the depths of our heart is true, no matter what circumstance we may face in our life as individuals, as a church. All things work together for good. So let's think about these three points as they come to us from the text this morning. Number one, all things. We're told in verse 1 that the Philistines had gathered all their forces to Aphek. And as we, as we survey this story in light of the story of 1 Samuel, and we remember how God showed that he himself has sovereignty over all the Philistines. But even more, as we look at the sweeping nature of all of Scripture, we realize that David, even though he is in a tight spot, really has nothing to fear. His circumstances seem dire. There is no way of escape for him at this point. He's surrounded by all the forces of the Philistines, even King Achish himself, the chief enemy of the people of God, has him under his thumb. I don't want you out of my sight. You are my bodyguard for life. Even though all of these things are gathered around him, the truth that David clung to and the truth that we need this morning is this. All things. Not some things. Not most things. Not all of the good things. All things. Even the Philistines and all of their forces they serve at the beckoning call of the Sovereign Lord. There is no creature. There is no star. There is no molecule in this universe that does not serve the Lord of that universe with every ounce and fiber of its being. He is sovereign in control of all. Things. Even this Philistine camp that's gathered at Aphek with all of its forces 
And even if that camp were filled with 10,000 Philistine giants like Goliath, still God would be in control of all of them. They exist to do His good pleasure, and they cannot do otherwise. That is true of this Philistine army. It's true of anything that has ever existed in this universe. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet references the two most powerful kingdoms of his day, Egypt and Assyria, and he says, The Lord will whistle to them as one whistles to a fly or a bee. At our house, we don't have a dinner bell. When dinner's ready, I whistle to the kids in the house. And they all come running down the hall from whatever room they're playing or even outside, and they come running to the dinner table every time. That's what Isaiah says. All these powerful kings, the Lord, all he has to do is whistle. And they come running to him to do whatever he wants them to do. Akish, the Philistines, Saul, David, every Israelite, every creature, every planet, every rock, every emperor, every king, every peasant, every tree, every fish, bird, drop of water, everything in all of the universe that has ever existed, all things are under his control. And all things exist to do the will of God and to serve him. The friends of God serve him willingly and find glory and honor and peace. The enemies of God serve him against their will and find tribulation and distress and wrath. When the early church was facing persecution, this is the truth that they clung to as well. All things. Let me read to you their prayer from Acts 4. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? Sounds a lot like the Philistines this morning in 1 Samuel 29. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this very city of Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod... Pontius Pilate, all the nations, and all the people of Israel gathered together all things. And the church clung to this truth. The reason they exist is simply to serve and act and live at the very pleasure of the sovereign Lord they called their God. If this isn't true, then there is no point in prayer. If this isn't true, then there's no hope for David at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 29. If the sovereign Lord does not move all things, including even his enemies, the Philistines and King Achish, across the face of the earth like little pawns on a chessboard, if God does not have that kind of control, then why on earth would we pray to him? No, we pray to Him because we do trust and believe that all things are under His control. Because even when the whole world 
All the rulers, all the people, even God's own people had gathered together, conspired, planned in order to murder the Son of God. Even in that, their most secretive endeavors, their most insidious plans, even in that, they were accomplishing exactly and perfectly the will of God. Friends, this much is true. All things work together for good. And that's why, although David finds himself in a tough spot in chapter 29, we can have hope. And he can have hope. All things, secondly, work together. So, all the Philistines are getting together and they're heading into battle and they're passing by by their hundreds and thousands and the Philistines stop their king and say, hold on, what's going on here? Look at verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines said, what What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, well, is this not David? Do you not know who this is? This is David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years. And since he deserted to me, I have not found any fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send that man back, that he may return to whatever place to which you have assigned to him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not the David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. When we think about this idea, principle of working together, we're talking about God's plan. How is God working things together? So first, think about how God makes use of these Philistine generals and the jealousy that they must have felt that this upstart Hebrew is the one who is marching into battle arm in arm with their king. Do you think they like that David, a Hebrew, was the one who had been entrusted with the very life of their king? No way. And then, as they're arguing with the king, what is it that comes up? That song. That song that we keep hearing, you know, the one that throughout the whole book of 1 Samuel has been at the top of the Billboard 100 with that catchy chorus. How does it go again? A Saul has struck his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It's that song, the, the one that got David into all this trouble at the very beginning. You remember the one that inspired Saul to this jealousy that chased David out of the kingdom of Israel and forced him to live with the Philistines in the first place? That's the very song that sets David free. Isn't it funny how God works things together like that? This very song, the one that they sang after David killed Goliath, they're saying, don't you remember what this David? Yes, we know this David. He's the one that slew Goliath. Have you forgotten? So David is unable to act David can't say, I can't fight against the Israelites. Why? Because he's been implying to the Philistines that he's been killing Israelites all along. So he's trapped. 
He can't say or do anything other than just march along and hope someone else acts. And guess who does? God does. He works together. He sends these jealous Philistines and this song to come along and set him free. And what does David have to do? Wait patiently for God to work things together. You know, so often I think that's where we fail. We're not willing to wait for God to work things together. Things seem to be getting out of hand, and so we need to get involved. We take matters into our own hands because there doesn't seem to be any good option. But let me tell you, if your two paths are either sin this way or sin that way, there is a third option, which is just don't do anything. Choose not to sin and wait upon the Lord to work things together. If it's impossible for you to proceed in your life without sinning, then maybe you just need to not proceed and wait for God to work things together for you. It's God's responsibility to provide that third way. From our perspective, our lives seem to be falling apart. The world seems to be falling apart. It's threatening to explode or implode at any time. But as we look at the pieces working together, finally fitting together in chapter 29 to spring David into freedom, we're reminded of the words of Joseph in Genesis 50 who says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And friends, if you need another example of what this looks like, we don't need to look any further than the cross itself. The cross is itself the great working together of God, of the entire history of the world. As the nails pierced through the hands of the Son of David and the Son of God was brought together His back with a piece of wood, we behold, looking at the cross, the most wicked intention, the most rebellious act of man brought together with the most compassionate, kind, loving, gracious act that God has ever done in the history of the world. Coming together, working together for us. And it becomes the key that unlocks the door of heaven for all who repent and believe. If God can take the cross and make it work together for our good, what do you and I have to fear in our life? What do we have to fear in our workplace, in our marriage, in our classes at school? It seems impossible. Because it is. It is impossible for you. But we can't forget the words of Jesus himself who said, With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can make anything work together. It did work together for David. We saw God provides for him a way of escape. 
To believe that God is working things together means that as Christians we never have to make a choice between a lesser of two evils. If there is a situation with two evils, we wait for God to work things together to where we can do the right thing. There is no time in the life of a believer where God does not provide a way of escape, a God-honoring third choice. Which may mean when we're trapped, we wait on the Lord to work things together to set us free. David himself writes in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's what God says to the Lord Jesus. If it's true for the Lord Jesus that He has to wait for His enemies to be made a footstool, maybe we might have to do some waiting on the Lord to work things together as well. All things work together, finally, for good. Listen to how Akish speaks about David's conduct while he was living with him. Verse 6. As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right and good that you should march out and in with me in my campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this very day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the Lord, the lords of the Philistines. Look down at verse 9. And Akish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Isn't it funny? A Gentile king recognizes what's true about David. The chief enemy of God's people is quicker to acknowledge the truth about David than King Saul. King Saul had all of these people telling him, David, there's nothing wrong in him. He's an upright man. He's honest. He's not trying to kill you. Saul wouldn't believe it. Here's David living among the Philistines and they recognize it right away. David is upright, blameless, holy, above reproach. He is good through and through. There's a story that I've loved since I read the book The Hiding Place in grade school. It's a story about Corrie Ten Boom, who was a Dutch woman whose family hid Jews from the Nazis during, uh, during the Second World War. And the story goes that Corrie had a sister, Betsy, who had uh, made a commitment to the Lord that she was never going to tell a lie from a very early age, would never tell uh, a falsehood. So the Nazis come banging down their door and they, they come in and barge in and say, do you have any Jews in here? Well, the family had built a hiding place under the kitchen table and there was a trap door they would pull a carpet over. Well, Betsy, just being the truth teller that she was, says to these Nazi soldiers, they're under the table. And they look at the table, and clearly there's no Jews crouched under the table. And they get kind of upset and angry with her because it seems like she's being smart with them. They search the house everywhere except for under the table, and they leave. And, and that's the way that David has acted, right? He does the right thing over and over again. He's above reproach, and yet the Lord vindicates him in his righteousness. David is vindicated by the lips of a Gentile king just chapters before he's about to receive the kingdom. Sounds like a story I've heard before. You know, something about 
uh, a Gentile ruler saying, I have found no wrongdoing in this man. What wrongdoing has he done? This man is innocent. Spoken just days before that man would burst out of the grave and be exalted to the highest seat in all of heaven and earth. Ringing any bells for anyone? For good. Well, I hope that you've realized now that the sermon points all fit together. A very familiar verse, Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. But uh, I've left one part of that verse out. All things do work together for good, but there's actually a qualifier that comes before that statement. And that qualifier is essential because what is about to unfold in the next two chapters is very good for David. Not good for Saul. This is how the verse actually reads. For those who love God, all things work together for good. This is the promise of God. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And David found that to be true in 1 Samuel 25. But your life, whether it will turn out for good or for evil for you, all hinges on this one little qualifier for those who love God. You can't claim this promise for yourself unless you know that to be true. Do you love God? If you do, one day, perhaps at the end of time, you and I will look back and our life will feel very much like 1 Samuel chapter 29. It seemed impossible. We seemed trapped. There seemed no way out. And no way for God to keep his promise. And yet he has. All things work together for good. I don't even want to pretend to understand how they did. But praise God they did. If you don't love God, you will look back on your life. And it will feel very much like chapters 30 and 31 for Saul. A series of circumstances and situations and people and success and victories that seemed at first to ensure very good success for you, but ended in your ultimate destruction. But it all hinges on that one phrase. Are you David? Are you Saul? For those who love God, all things work together for good. And so I want you to think about that. Is that true for you? Have I come to put all of my faith and trust in the one who controls me already? The Lord of the universe. Have I given control of my life over to him? And trusted that no matter what situation I find myself in, if he can make the cross work together for my good, he can make anything else do the same. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your promises are sure. That we can cling to them with our, for dear life. Because all of the promises of God are yes and amen in our Savior Jesus Christ, our King.
God, we thank you that he only needs to sit and wait for his enemies to be made a footstool, that you will submit all the nations to him. God, we pray that each of us would submit our life in love and surrender to our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.